Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Mordechai Levovitz. We crossed paths in a controversial clubhouse room and I fell in love with his story. Orthodox Jews and LGBTQ aren't usually used in the same sentence, but Mordechai is a pioneer leading the charge for LGBTQ youth and families in the Jewish community. Mordechai, welcome. So I was really taken aback by some of the things that you said in that Jewish room because I felt like you were really speaking from the heart and that you had a lot of passion behind what you were saying. So I was like, that guy has been through something like, (laughs) I mean, I was just on clubhouse and there was one young, she was 27 years old. And I think it was 13 or 14 years ago, she tweeted something, a few things that were just horrible. And she was, I mean, she was a child. She was a, you know, a teenager. And she tweeted really, really anti-Semitic things and really homophobic things and really actually racist things. And there was an organization called Canary Project or something that found these tweets and were, was kind of doxing her, was like, you know, made a site with her name on it and saying, look, this person in 2012 and 2011 said, you know, fuck you Jews and something faggot and something N-word. And it was very hard to read. But the interesting thing about what she did was she's like, I want to talk about that because I want to talk about how stupid I was as a teenager and how much I am not that person now. It's just a shame that like, there's a site like this that holds me as an adult at 27 to where I was at 17. Like, hopefully we're all not at 27 where we were at 17. And I thought that was such a good point. And, you know, it like, completely made me do a 180 because if I just saw that website and I just saw her saying fuck you Jews and I would be like oh my god I never want to talk to this person and here I am talking to this person and she's actually making a lot of sense she's like I was a stupid teenager yeah I was an anti-semitic racist homophobic teenager and guess what at 27 I'm very different good (laughs) like that's what we want it was a lesson for me and I hope everyone else in the room Cut people a little slack. (laughs) And in my youth, it wasn't recorded. Right. That's another thing, right? Like in all of these people, especially millennials and lower, their teenage years, everything is recorded forever. That must really suck. There's a trending story on Twitter right now that somebody just made an anti-Semitic comment and he's like a sports player and he's now apologizing for it. I mean, listen, no problem with apologizing. I think people, like everyone, should learn to apologize. But there needs to be an understanding that people do grow. And you know what? People, when they're young and stupid, are young and stupid. That's what being young and stupid is about. A lot of teenagers are shitty people. Yeah. (laughs) And adults. (laughs) And adults. But just because you're a shitty teenager doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be a shitty adult. Sometimes you learn from being a shitty teenager. So tell me about Better Call Daddy. My dad is just my everyday hero. And I go to him Mm -hmm. with all of my, you know, worries and advice. (laughs) I talk to him about work, about 
my marriage, about friendships. And I yeah. always felt like he had good advice to give me. And so during the pandemic, this time, I was like, what a great time to like capture that and share it mm. with the world. So through creating a podcast, I'm interviewing guests sharing the stories mm. with my dad. And then at the tail end of every episode, my dad weighs in with either his analysis of the story or his two cents. That's a cool construct. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. So we have talked to murderers and Netflix stars and people who've been abused and people who are CEOs and just a wide range of guests. And then mm -hmm. sometimes people have a question for my dad, which can be fun. And other times my dad just reflects on their story. He ran a manufacturing company with his parents for 45 mm -hmm. years and he's an entrepreneur. He's constantly reinventing himself. I just feel like he has a lot of like solid advice. That's awesome. I just remember what sticks out in my mind about you is that you work at this nonprofit and you help kids that grow up religious. They're like LGBTQ mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you create a space for them and yeah. you help them transition. Right. I mean, transition when I say transition to health, right? That's really- Transition to health. Right. Yeah. That's really our only goal. We don't really have any religious or political agenda other than making sure that teens are healthy and empowered and happy. And that could mean something different for, for every teenager because, you know, everyone's different. But I mean, I grew up in a very orthodox, what we call black hat household. My mother wears a shaitel, which is a wig all the time. And my father wears a fedora style black hat and a black suit and a white shirt. I mean, and I was very, very gay. If you would have seen me at four or five, you would have been like, yeah, sure. He's going to be gay. <laughs> like, there's some kids who you just kind of know. I mean, he was very feminine. I was with the limp wrist and doing my little sassy thing. And it was, it's adorable. Like, you know, th there are just some kids like that. And, and I was that. Like, I knew that it made some people uncomfortable, but I kind of had a lot of confidence too. And I was like, okay, this is me. Like, I'm not, I'm not faking who I am. This is me. And I don't know anybody. I don't know anything else. And it was only as I slowly got older that I realized how much who I was didn't fit into my surroundings, didn't fit into kind of the construct that my family was creating for me, and certainly the community that my family was expecting me to be a part of. And that was, whoa, traumatic. And that's really like, that's something really hard to kind of slowly become more and more conscious of. Then, you know, when you're completely conscious of it, when you're like in high school and you're like, whoa, I'm really in the wrong place. It's almost kind of comes up with you like a catastrophe. Like what? This is some kind of trick. <laughs> like, and that's really what happened to me. I was just like becoming more and more and more aware. And finally I was just like opened my eyes in high school and like, something is not right. <laughs> and, and really, I high school, have... I feel like is a long time. It took me a while. It really did because I was a confident kid and I had friends and my family loved me. So That's I wonderful. don't, I never, I never felt unloved, never. And I think because of that, I think it took me longer to realize that something was very, very amiss. Until really my teenage years, that was like, no, all this other stuff, okay. But something is very, very not right here. Like, I do not fit in. There is not a role for me, a, a, a place for me in this community that I'm supposedly training to be a part of. 
there's this kind of inherent contradiction about my life here and something has to change. So it did take me a little longer, but at that point, there was really nobody who could help. I didn't know any other queer people and I didn't even have the vocabulary on my own to really understand, am I gay? Am I, why, why am I feminine? What, like, what am I? Like, I don't, it, it was, there was, I was just so alone in this. So slowly but surely, as I first went to college and then social media, it was just the age of like, this was way before Facebook. Like this was in the age of like Friendster. So we're, we're talking like 1999, right? Like 1998, 1999, 2000. So this is really like a good almost eight years before Facebook even existed. But the internet was this new thing. And there were ways where you can actually put things in search engines and find people like yourself. And that's what happened. Somebody created a, a dating site called gayjews.net. I found it. And what was so interesting about it was you could search via denomination. You can literally search all the people who said Orthodox. And for the first time in my life, I could put in Orthodox gay Jews search. So all these people who thought they were the only ones and lived on these islands, you can like, oh my God, now they're all on the screen. I'm not interested in dating everybody, but what I am interested in knowing everybody. So I wrote like a basic like email, a template email, like, hi, my name is Mordechai. I grew up Orthodox. I thought I was the only gay person in the world, in this community. All I ever wanted was to know that I'm not alone. Would you be interested in joining a community? Mm -hmm. Would you be interested in like being a friend, being in a community? So we are just not alone, mm -hmm. right? So we just like have something that can connect us. If we need each other, to know each other, to learn from each other, to celebrate together, to be afraid together, you know, all the things that come with community. And I sent it to every single person who came up on that search box. I love it. And yeah. I got a lot of weird responses. <laughs> some of them were like super, super creepy. I, I won't lie. But some of them were just as excited to kind of like, oh my God, I also thought I was the only one. Isn't it crazy that we have so much in common? And slowly but surely, we created like an email listserv. And that email listserv got called JQU, Jewish Queer U because we were all around the same age. We were all like 17, 18, 19, 20. One night we all decided to get meat, right? There was like, and it was not all, I mean, it was like 11 people. So 11 people that we were all really nervous and we didn't even know where to go. Like, where do where does one even go to meet other gays? So we were like, okay, I hear that the village is the place where gays go. So like, so naive, naively, like a bunch of yeshiva boys decided, okay, let's go to a place in the village and be gay. Someone found a cafe that was on Bleecker Street. And when we met, we realized, wow, right? We really are this kind of lost tribe. That, that, that's what it was. It was like finding a lost tribe. It felt miraculous. It felt like, wow. And so much good can come out of, of LGBTQ Jews knowing each other and building a community that should have already been there. From then, we kept on more and more people joined and 
first it was just a bunch of gay yeshiva boys and then it became uh, lesbians and bisexuals and then finally trans people and non-binary people and then all ages. And then we started focusing on who needs the most services. So it was youth and teens and children. And some of us became social workers and doctors and psychologists. And that's when we, we gave back the way we knew how. And that's really how over these last 21 years, this has grown. I'm the clinical director at JQY, which really focuses now on LGBTQ teens and children who are now growing up in Orthodox homes and Hasidic homes and Mizrahi homes who need help. And now we are there for them. So no longer will there be a Mordechai in a yeshiva feeling alone. Now there's this organization that is there. And that's what I do. And I'm very proud of it. And it's my life's work. Wow, that is incredible. And it's crazy that it stemmed from like a dating site. Yeah, it stems from like a weird 1999, what is a computer? What is the internet dating site? Like, it was the dawn of a new age. That is truly amazing. But I also want to talk a little bit about the hardship because I think there was probably a time, I think I found a video of you being interviewed online where you wanted to try to change yourself. Yeah, I think, listen, a lot of people have kind of a, a journey with coming to terms with being LGBTQ in a community that really doesn't want you to be LGBTQ and parents that don't want you to be LGBTQ and also having so much to give to you if you're not LGBTQ. Your parents will celebrate you with a marriage and, and buy you a house and everyone will celebrate your life and you have all this community, you know, validating you. So there's such pressure to at one point think, oh my God, if I could just do something to you know, become not gay, then oh my God, I'm gonna do it. And in the beginning, you know, in the 90s, that was the time where like science, especially in religious communities, was telling gay teenagers that that there is a way to change from being gay, right? That would those are the messages in the 90s. And they're very insidious messages. And there were doctors behind that message. It's not like there were just rabbis. There were many doctors, doctors, social workers, and, and psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, and academics even. You think, you're here you are, you're just a vulnerable teenager. You're like, really? Like, all I can do is that, this, 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 and not be gay anymore? All right, sign me up. Now, what they don't tell you is that it doesn't work. And everybody who tries it finds that out, usually. And the sooner they find it out, the luckier that they are. Because the longer that process is, the more traumatic it could be, the more expensive it is. And really the more kind of real harm that you can get yourself into. I was lucky that for me, I never really spent that much time really believing that it could work because even the smallest amount of research that I've done was very obvious that it was not working and it was not working for my friends. Also, when I was a child, much younger, my parents sent me, like when I was like six and seven and eight, when I was told you I was a very feminine kid. So my parents were very worried that I was so feminine. So they sent me to a psychiatrist even then. Those were the 80s, the early 80s. So it's who's to say if this doctor is anything like this now, right? And perhaps now he's the most woke guy in the world. But back in the 80s, he was telling me as a eight-year-old, well, why don't you try baseball? And 
Maybe you should don't play with a Shira doll, play with a He-Man doll. Like, uh, don't play with a Barbie, play with a Ken. Like, silly, stupid things that obviously, as a child, like, yeah, yeah, thank you, doctor, because you suggest I play with a Ken, now I'm not going to be gay anymore. Like, it's so stupid, and I, and I cannot believe that even in the 80s, like, doctors actually believed that shit. But it was confusing. I, I never thought it helped or did anything. And, and again, I was only five and six. I didn't even know that they were trying to change me then. I just thought, why is this stupid man telling me to play with a Ken doll? I obviously want to do Barbie's hair. I don't care about Ken. <laughs> right? So, but again, I was lucky enough that I was smart. And I was also lucky enough that the people that I did meet later on who were in like conversion therapy for a while, I saw how much it traumatized them. So I got out of that idea of changing myself pretty quickly. I think, you know, in college for a few years, there was this notion, well, maybe I can marry a girl, maybe I can, you know, and, and I flirted with it and I did go to some therapists, but I don't think I was that traumatized by it. But it's still within you, you know, that little piece of doubt that, you know, well, maybe you've made the really wrong decision, which is sad because I don't think straight people walk around with that kind of doubt about their sexuality. Almost anybody who has a progressive mindset who grows up in a very orthodox family is going to have it hard because the orthodox ideology is sometimes in conflict with progressive values. I mean, that's the idea, right? It's more right wing, it's more traditional, it's more backwards and progressive is more forward. And that conflict is true for all people who are more progressively inclined. I think it's more visceral when you're queer because you're talking about your very life's worth. But the truth is, is that if you're just, if you're a woman then you think that you're equal and have value and dignity as a woman, it could be just as visceral because you're in a society that's obviously very mis misogynist. So I think that there are a lot of people who really don't fit in to right-wing orthodoxy and it's a struggle for us all. And that's why we gotta be there for each other. That's why these things are intersectional. And I hope that that's why there are natural allies between women who grew up in the right-wing orthodox community and gay people and both gay men and gay women and gay trans people and regular trans people. There's a lot of intersectional kind of allyship here. When it comes to my family, after all of this, my family does still love me. The truth is it's hard not to love a child, but that doesn't mean just because you love your child that you're kind or you treat them right or you fill them with confidence and health and all that. You can still screw up your kid. <laughs> and I think that my parents did not know how to raise a gay child. I don't know if that exonerates them, but I don't think it's about being exonerated. This is not a court case. It is what it is. They didn't even know really what gay meant. And obviously they made a lot of mistakes and the person who suffered was me. And that sucks. Nothing will make that right. It's sad and it's something I have to live with. Does it mean that my parents are bad people? No. It means my parents were very ill-equipped and I wish that they had a community that could teach them how to be better parents to queer children. I think that communities that talk about the possibility that your children may be LGBTQ puts that possibility in parents' minds and makes them think about it. I don't want to make a comparison between kids with disabilities and kids who are LGBTQ, but at least in the Orthodox community, when you have children, if you're an adult, you do go through the kind of mental construct. It's possible that my child may be disabled. My child may be sick. My, like, how are we going to support each other? Is there communal support for it? The communities do help in certain ways, but I think that they are at least when I grew up, there was 
such denial that LGBTQ people even existed in Orthodox families that my parents never even had a chance. Now I think it's a little different than because of the work that my organization is doing, we're trying to raise awareness and even the most right-wing Hasidic homes, your child may be a lesbian. It doesn't matter how religious you are. That won't stop your child from being a lesbian because no one chooses to be a lesbian. You're born being, you know, you're born that way or being trans or being gay or being bisexual or whatnot. The more we kind of raise this awareness, we put it inside of their minds that when they do decide to have children, perhaps they're thinking about it. And perhaps they're asking more equipped people and making better decisions and not causing trauma. I think that it's easier today to be an LGBTQ teen in an Orthodox home than it was in the 80s and 90s. And if it's even that little bit easier, then I am very proud of the work that we're doing because I think that we had a hand in that. Have you had pushback against your organization? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Sure, there's a lot of pushback. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of sense that, you know, we have this queer agenda and we're, you know, hardcore leftists here to take your kids and make them queer. There's a lot of, lot of fear that we are part of some political agenda and that we are these activists and trying to convert children into queer lefty communist, <laughs> I don't know what, whatever they think of us. But I think that, you know, first of all, if they do any research and if they talk to anybody from our, our organization, and if they truly just care about their children and care about their children's mental health and well-being, then they'll understand that this is really just about keeping kids healthy. But also a lot of the kids in our organization are not out to their parents. So their parents don't even know that their kids go to JQI. In New York, you can be a minor and get clinical care for being LGBTQ without consent of the parents, because the idea is, is that perhaps if the parents knew, they wouldn't allow the child to get care. So there is a loophole that allows these minors to get care on their own. How do they find you? A lot of different ways. I mean, there's word of mouth. It's on the internet, not during the pandemic, even really very right in Hasidic people. Sometimes they get access to the internet through computers in the library. Sometimes they have like burner phones. <laughs> it's like, you know, freedom finds a way. <laughs> and sometimes actually doctors, physicians, pediatricians recommend, like someone will tell their doctor and their doctor will refer the teenager to JQY. And then sometimes that we try to look for the gatekeepers within a community, like if there is one liberal rabbi in a community or one liberal psychologist or a counselor, you know, we try to reach out to them and maybe have them be a messenger to say, hey, there, have you tried this organization called JQI? They may help you. It's hard to keep children away from the internet. It's hard enough to keep children away from the internet. It's impossible to keep teenagers. Do you incorporate any Shabbos dinners or because I feel like if, if you grow up orthodox like you're drawn to that it's kind of the way that cultural competency works within clinical settings right you want to meet people where they are and certainly if we were completely kind of dry and secular and a lot of people from orthodox homes would not feel at home in JQI so for example our, our drop-in centers in New York are usually on Thursday nights and so it's not Chavez but we have kosher pizza Around the holidays, we'll have holiday programming like Purim and Pesach and Hanukkah and Sukkot and 
you know, so all these things will really seem familiar. We'll be able to use the same words and, you know, have the same cultural touchstones. It seems familiar and what we call in Yiddish is called Hamish, like homey. And that does make a difference. And then outside of the drop-in center, we do have holiday parties, like the Purim party, you know, and that's very fun. We try to use these cultural touchstones to make people feel at home and make people feel that this is a place where they fit in and they don't have to explain themselves. So if you come to JQI and you come from an Orthodox family, you're going to be understood. We got you. <laughs> we get you. That's really cool. So do you get non-religious people too? Yes, actually. We don't turn anybody away because ultimately we're a clinical organization. If you feel you belong and you get something, then you do. We're an organization that specializes and focuses on LGBTQ teens from Orthodox and Hasidic and Mizrahi Sephardi homes. So that's kind of our, our special focus because we feel like the risks are higher there, but we're really an organization for all LGBTQ you don't even have to be Jewish. If you come to JQI and you feel like this is a warm place where you get support, all right, so so you'll have kosher pizza. It's not that bad. <laughs> you know, so you'll go to a perm party. You're not required to be or believe or act any way other than kind and nice and with respect. That's really cool. And in a way, I feel like that's like a beautiful version of Judaism, right? Why Definitely. Should, yeah, why should you have to believe anything religiously to earn support? or to earn certainly psychological support. Nobody's support should be contingent upon a dogma or should be contingent. Everybody deserves love and support and empowerment. Everybody, no matter if you're religious or you hate religion. And there are a lot of people who come from orthodoxy who are very, very religious still, and that's lovely. And there are a lot of people who come from orthodoxy who hate religion, and that's okay too. That's totally fine. And you know what's a really cool space? When the people who love religion and hate religion meet at this special place where it's all about just supporting each other. That's a really cool kind of moment. That's a, that's a cool space to hold because ultimately it's about supporting each other regardless of your opinions, regardless of your belief systems. We can actually support each other's different beliefs. A really good example of where this happens is like, like in controversial areas, like in New York uh, in June, there is an Israel, Celebrate Israel Day parade. And the interesting thing is within the Orthodox world, not everyone is Zionist. In fact, as you go to real right-wing Orthodoxy, you get into some major anti-Zionism. So within JQI, there's a real split. You have people who are, you know, really kind of Zionist, and Israel is very important to them. And then you have people both on the extreme right and the extreme left who are very kind of anti-Zionist or pro-Palestinian or just not, just anti the state of Israel. So what happens during June, there's this Israel Day Parade that we actually fought really hard to be able to allow LGBTQ people to march in, because for so many years they did not allow LGBTQ people to march in it. And it was our organization that fought and won the chance to march. But also we understand that there are people from our organization who protest the very same parade. And what we do, I don't think any other organization does this at all. We have a poster making night where both the people who are protesting the parade and marching in the parade come to the same poster making. And we just, it's just an arts and craft night. And we all help each other and share paints and share things. And we're all, that night, we are all there to make cool posters, no matter what it says on the posters. On the parade, some of us will march and some of us will protest. And we'll say hello. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that we can still support each other and be on each other's side, even when we come on different sides of, of some controversial issues. 
I hope that other Jewish communities will look at us and use that as an example. That's really amazing. You're quite a bridge. I love that. We're a bridge over troubled water. <laughs> oh my God. I feel like it's hard enough to be Jewish in the first place. What else I find interesting though, is like you are going to all of these Jewish rooms. You really do want to be a part of the Jewish people. I do it too. Like I go to the whistleblower rooms, the troublemaker rooms, the mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to find my place, you know, but I do want to be a part of this people that I never have felt Jewish enough for. It's an interesting dynamic. It's almost like a moth to a flame, right? We're really yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we get hurt. Like sometimes we really do get hurt when these, you know, but we still kind of come back. There's something about communal living and Jewish communal living, whether it's conversations or just being together or even arguing that feels like, oh, I should be in this room. And that's what community is about sometimes. I miss being able to, you know, walk into synagogues and community centers and bar mitzvahs and weddings and like, There's something to be said about that, going to people's houses for Shabbos, even people that you don't agree with. I think there's a lot to learn and there's also a lot to be frustrated with. This whole experience of being gay and growing up Orthodox has made me appreciate my relationship with Judaism and I think has enriched my Judaism. It's complicated, complicated to be a Jew in general, complicated (laughs) to be queer, complicated to live in 2021, complicated to be blonde. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. And I'm not even really blonde. So. Looks good on you. Thank you. It's just complicated in general. Do you have any tips for parents on how they can be more accepting? Yeah. Be better parents? I, mean, I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel, right? I think that the most important thing that I would like to convey to parents is that your vulnerability and your humility and your not having the answers goes a long way. You don't always have to have the answers to everything or every problem that your children has. And when you don't, that's actually an opportunity to connect with your children. That's an opportunity to lead with love and say, you know what? I don't have the answers, but I'm going to hold your hand and we're going to go through this together. And life is scary and I'm confused like you're confused. And isn't that great that I love you? Isn't that great that I'm there for you? Because that's when we need each other most. That's when I use my parenting the most, when we don't know. Don't be afraid to kind of really understand your parenting is strongest. The love for your child is strongest when you don't have the answers, not when you do. What if you have a parent that doesn't agree with it, but still wants to be loving? You love your child regardless, right? You do love your child. Can you disagree? and love. You can make it clear that you disagree, but do you have to keep making it clear every second? Like, what exactly are you teaching after? You've made your case, right? You've, you've told your child, well, I disagree with your lifestyle. Believe me, when, when a child hears that, they hear it. Okay, so why do you have to keep saying it? But if you also love your child, then maybe what your child needs to hear is more of how much you love them really comprehend and understand that your lovingness is not tied to your agreeing. I think that's a really good message. I think, and especially now, like, I feel like it's so crazy, but that can be really hard to say. And I think. Say the things that you think are obvious. And it's hard because we're all also riddled with our own insecurity and our own complicated feelings of like, especially to the people we love the most. There is such a natural push for a parent to love a child. 
it actually is not that difficult. When parents think of the, the possibility that they may lose a child, certainly to things like suicide, which is very real, then that's a wake-up call to a lot of parents. There's no second chances when that happens. Have you seen it's that happen? Yeah, unfortunately. There's suicide and self-harm in every teenage community, but it, it is higher in the LGBTQ community and even higher in the LGBTQ community in religious homes. Mental health is precarious. Mental health is not as strong as people think it is, especially when dealing with teenagers. And so we have to be careful. Most people are very delicate to what their parents say to them. And if their parents say something in the wrong way, even if they don't mean it, they can shatter us. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? I can't wait to hear what he has to say about all of this. <laughs> oh my God. I was, the only thing I would ask your dad is like, what was it like raising you as a teenager? As a, as a young teenager, you know, when you kind of like explored your sexuality, understood yourself as a woman, understood, you know, were you rebellious? Like what was disciplining you like? <laughs> how, how did you kind of deal with the idea of sometimes agreeing with those who may, who you don't agree with, right? Like, let's say if, if your father agreed with a school who you disagreed with or, or just, you know, how did he kind of balance his love for you and his wanting something different for you? And every parent kind of finds their own way. So yeah, how'd you do it, Dad? <laughs> He's definitely had to lighten up. Oh my gosh, Mordecai, I loved connecting with you. Thank you so much. Anytime. Wonderful. I'm glad we connected and I'm excited for this podcast in the age of podcasts. So daddy, what did you think? Well, very interesting interview. And, uh, and I think that he really was a pioneer in finding other people that are just like him. And also trying to, again, since he did not fit in his community, he decided to make a community that he does fit in and help people be able to find themselves. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he said. I thought a very interesting point that was made is that can being different with your sexual orientation, can it be taught to someone to be a certain way? Or is it you are what you are naturally? Uh, this has been a great debate. His opinion is, is that he knew since he's five or six years old that he was the type of person that was more feminine. And he felt that he was very different than most boys his age and all growing up that he was different and not necessarily attracted to the opposite sex. I didn't go, live through each year with him to really know and observe his behavior all growing up. Isn't it ironic that the group that he's spirited, some people are critiquing that he's out there possibly creating a political movement where he's trying to give young adults or even you know minors, by definition, a place to see where they can be comfortable and figure it out. And can he be an influence of someone who's not sure influencing them to be more like him rather than heterosexual. He brings up that somebody can't cure him or teach him to be a certain way for his sexuality, just like he can't influence someone to be like him. It's really like two sides of the coin. You can't teach it to someone and you can't influence someone else to be like you if they're not like you. He feels like he was different from the beginning with no outside influences 
whatsoever that uh, it is what it is with him and that he was born with these tendencies and was always who he is and that seeing a psychologist at a young age wasn't going to change who he is. And he also agrees that by him trying to support others that are going through the same thing that he might be going through, that he's not there to be able to change them either, that he's just there to try to help them find themselves and to have some support and love and encouragement so that you can be whoever you are without torment. So I think he has a noble cause, even though the direct question of whether or not we can influence someone into their sexuality is certainly, I believe, still open for debate. That's interesting. I believe that he believes he's being supportive only. And the truth of the matter is, is that people that have issues can be very mentally disturbing facing that. So the truth of the matter is he stands for communication and love and support and for people to be able to have a voice of being able to check out a site where there's people that feel similarly to what you might be going through. And isn't that the same thing, having a support group, an Alcohols Anonymous, or if someone's on drugs, where there's a, a place where you can go, a support group that's experiencing the same things that you are, but just to try to be supportive and to be able to say, hey, we've been through this. I believe that he's there to support people and not necessarily influence them to be like him. He's there to support whatever they want to be. I found it quite ironic also that he still was brought up with a religious Jewish point of view, knowing that he didn't fit in, but yet still would like to celebrate with people and still feels very close to his Jewish identity, even though he believes that his sexuality is different than the way he was taught, but that he can fit in with others and get along with others and support people that are different. That's how we met. You know, it was a community about religious and non-religious Jews coming together. Isn't that something? Looking at it from many different angles of who he is, and you caught him in a spot where it's got nothing to do necessarily with sexuality, but on traditional religious points of view. I mean, I've got a preteen now that went right before his bar mitzvah in street clothes to wrap to fill in versus putting on a suit, which is what all of the other kids his age are doing and posting their picture perfect Facebook. Right. And ironically, putting on the tefillin, whether you're in dungarees or whether you're in a suit, shouldn't make any difference. It certainly doesn't make a difference to God. Well, would you be happy if he showed up like that for his bar mitzvah? Whatever makes him comfortable and he shows up and prays from the heart because it's not between, like you say, it's not between the party. It's not between the celebration of who's got the best looking food at the the affair or who's got the best music at the party or who's got the most people showing up. It's about connecting Rafi's manhood where he's connecting with God and being connected to your people is more important than all the fluff. And what was I like as a teenager? (laughs) You were a rebel like Rafi. You still remember picking me up from the skating rink? Uh, We definitely had to keep three eyeballs on you. That's for sure. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 